Theriel Hafaji from FIN24. I wanted to ask Madam whether South Africa will seek IMF support um, and if that came up in discussions. Well, I can reassure you on the first point, I am not here to discuss any kind of financial support or to negotiate any kind of program and I have not received any request to that effect. So that's crystal clear uh, and I hope it puts to bed some of the uh, uh, rumors or noises that I have seen here and there about this particular matter. No, not at all. extent of the looting and the state patronage from the Zuma years becomes apparent in South Africa, and particularly as the damage to SARS' ability to collect revenue becomes undeniable, the Ramaphosa years are off to a rocky start. Suddenly there are a lot of rumours and whispers about South Africa needing to approach the global money pot, the International Monetary Fund, for a financial bailout. This idea partly comes from the 2015 book by the academic and author R.W. Johnson called Will South Africa Survive?, which is deliberately the same title as a book he wrote in 1977 about the apartheid state. In his 2015 book, Johnson speculates that an IMF bailout might, perhaps, become a possibility for the ANC in the coming years. It's important to note that people quote Johnson's book's prediction all the time, but hardly anyone seems to have actually read the book, including, I confess, straight up, me. So there are obviously dangers about reducing whole books to sound bites. But this podcast isn't about Johnson's book. I'm just pinpointing where this idea of an IMF bailout seems to have entered the consciousness of South Africa's intelligentsia back in 2015. And since then, it hasn't really gone away. So what is the IMF? Well, the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, is headquartered in Washington, D.C., and it's headed by Christine Lagarde, who you heard at the beginning of the, the intro, although she is stepping down shortly. The IMF came into being in 1945 in the ashes of World War II, in which South Africa fought. It was to provide funding for countries to rebuild following the war. France was actually the first country to borrow money from the IMF in 1947. The IMF would only fund states who had signed up to be members. And in the 1940s, this list consisted primarily of the Allies from World War II. Later on in the 1950s and 60s, especially in the 60s, many African countries and other developing nations applied for membership of the IMF, which led to a giant swell of membership. After the Cold War, many former Soviet countries joined the IMF too in the biggest influx of new members since the African countries in the 60s. And the IMF played a central role in funding the transition from central planning economies to market-driven economies. This had never really been done before and it was extremely difficult and in some cases done pretty catastrophically. The IMF's history is frankly not one of glory and in many ways it's a hated institution that's done a lot of legitimate harm, including in Africa. The Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz has detailed the harms of the IMF and its interventions in his 2002 book, Globalism and Its Discontents. Stiglitz is actually an advisor to the ANC, to certain government departments. That's just an aside. Basically, when a country is forced to go to the IMF and ask for a bailout, the IMF only pays out those loans with strict conditions, which are negotiated and signed up in advance. And those conditions generally include restructuring your economy and, in the past, seriously slashing spending. There are few governments that like slashing spending, especially where poverty and inequality are issues. African countries have drawn on IMF bailouts a lot in the past 50 years, including lots of our southern African neighbours like Zimbabwe, Zambia, Mozambique and Angola, just to name a few. Democratic South Africa has never asked the IMF for a bailout. 
But in this last decade, a lot of African countries thought that they finally had an alternative to the IMF in the form of either China or sometimes the private sector. At last, there seemed to be a viable alternative to the IMF's terrible conditions. China's bilateral loans were fast, friendly, and they didn't seem to have that many strings attached. So by about 2015, Chinese loans were all the rage with African governments. But the problem with loans is that they're not presents and you have to pay them back. And when China wanted its money back, or at least some of its money, African countries like Mozambique and Zambia couldn't pay. And then things went very sour with China. So after that little failed experiment, the IMF is back in favor. And by 2018, 13 African countries had approached the IMF about getting bailouts, with several others joining the queue this year. To find out more, I spoke to Tara O'Connor. Tara is the founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consultancy, or ARC, which she founded in 2006. She's provided risk management to corporates operating in Africa for over 25 years, and she's profoundly knowledgeable about Africa. And she knows South Africa and Zimbabwe especially intimately. But Tara is also just plain interesting to talk to. Tara O'Connor, how are you? I'm extremely well, thank you, Jess. We've interrupted your summer holiday, I think. You have a little bit, but that's okay. It's all in a good cause, which is podcasts. Yeah, it's podcasts, <laughs> and we need to talk about IMF bailouts. That's yes, very we do. <laughs> you're, in, you're in gorgeous France right now. I am, sitting in the sweltering heat, it has to be said, but absolutely glorious. So all I can do is apologize for birdsong and uh, and sounds of falling apples behind me. <laughs> Our listeners are green with envy already. Well, let's, let's turn from the really beautiful and gorgeous, which is the French weather. Yes. And, uh, let's turn to slightly more a depressing subject matter. Yes. So I've, I've just hmm. been talking to listeners um, before we began our interview about the IMF and about all this discussion in South Africa around an IMF bailout. Yes. <laughs> what does it actually look like when a country runs out of money? And at what point does it become inevitable that they need a bailout? Effectively, what you're talking about is where there is insufficient uh, funds to to cover what the the government's budget deficit, and which then leads to an extreme pressure uh, on the country's balance of payments. Usually, uh, I think in the context of the of calling on the IMF. It's when you actually can no longer finance your own budget deficit or uh, basically you can't finance your own budget deficit. But in South Africa, I think there's an academic at Witt, Yanni Rousseau, who talks about uh, treasury, uh, you know, the South African treasury actually always over, you know, presenting optimistic growth rates. Um, against which they present a budget, which then then also leads to uh, contributes or adds to the fiscal cliff. And there's certainly a little bit of uh, of truth around that. And do you think that that's a deliberate decision of the Treasury to perhaps portray things as slightly more rosy than they know they will be, or is that just them constantly being blindsided by the global reality? I think it's a combination of both. I think there has been, to be perfectly honest, at the moment with Sura Ramaphosa and Tito Mbaweni uh, in charge of the economy, you've got two of the possibly the most competent people uh, to be in charge of the economy. But I think they are actually dealing with the overhang of the of the Zuma regime and the true impact of 
you know, of the mismanagement under in the Zuma years, which has left an overhang. So we're now getting the bill maybe after the party. Absolutely. That's totally right. Although the party was just really one of engorgement rather than actually sort of massive spending. It's usually massive spending that has led uh, and lots of social spending in the rest of the continent that have actually led to IMF interventions. So let's just carry on with our worst case scenario. So so everyone yeah. is saying at the moment South Africa's not quite in the stage where they might need an IMF bailout, including the IMF itself. But yes. if we were to get there, let's fast forward a year or two, the way that would manifest on a sort of day-to-day basis, it would probably be, if you're a civil servant or a government employee, a teacher or a nurse, it would probably be you not getting your salary. Well, I, d- I think it would be short of that. I mean, I think the very first sign of, of a crisis would be if the government was not able to finance itself through local borrowing. Mm-hmm. At the moment, there is no risk of that. You know, there is, uh, there is a real, there is sufficient uh, confidence with, I think there is sufficient confidence amongst the finance, in the local financial sector that the government will be able to finance its own deficit. But let's move it forward. The real risk, I think, to the South African economy for a while has been completely unmanaged uh, state-owned, you know, state-owned, the SOEs. And let's look, yes, the ESCOMs and so on. And if, for example, you are not, if that becomes crippling and unmanageable, which it's not, um, you uh, or if the tough decisions around uh, the state-owned enterprises are not taken by the current government, you could get into a situation where not only are, will banks not be confident in funding the government any further, and then you get into a situation where uh, where things, you know, all you need is one extra unseen international event that puts pressure on the balance of payments. And you could be in a situation where the government is unable to finance its own budget deficit and then has to go to uh, go to the IMF. South Africa, Cyril Maposa and Tito Mbaweni go to the IMF. Yes. They say we, we need to you know, request this loan. You start to hear about the conditionality of IMF loans, always said in sort of slightly dread terms. Um, totally. <laughs> so mm. they will impose what everyone calls structural reforms or just reforms. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what are those reforms? So usually what happens then is so you've got um, the finance uh, ministry will go to go to the IMF. And what then occurs is that the IMF will send a team to your country and work with the finance ministry and the president and design um, a structural adjustment program is what they have traditionally been called or a structural reform program, which is usually based around uh, classic uh, macroeconomic policies, which in, in in the immediate deal with cutting government spending usually. And that cutting of government spending is where you get that risk to civil servants, teachers, hospital workers, and so on. Because it usually in sort of governments where there is uh, overspending or governments that are unable to uh, match their uh, revenue intake to their spending and get into this sort of a crisis, um, it means that they tend they may lose their jobs or they may lose their pensions or they 
I mean, you will usually get lots of dramatic restructuring. In South Africa's case, you don't have the problems that you would have had in lots of West African countries, for example, where you have a whole host of ghost workers on ah. on the payroll for years. So that's usually a quick win for the IMF. They come in and they identify who's actually on the payroll, who's actually retired and who's died. Amazing. And then... Well, I'm sure there have been some instances of that in South Africa, ghost workers drawing, drawing government salaries. Drawing pensions, salaries and that sort of thing. But, and that is a form of corruption and it's usually... It's usually run by a corrupt cabal. Uh, so, you know, so there are some easy, quick wins for both governments and, um, and you know, and the finance uh, and the IMF in that sort of thing. But really, the first thing is it's, it's, it's about cutting spending. And that's, that's where the IMF programs get their bad name from. Yeah, because I was going to say, so if you arrive, it means that there's the coinciding of a whole bunch of really dramatic changes which citizens will feel in a, a variety of ways. But they're also coming from this perceived outsider, sort of interloper into, into say, the South African context. And, and that must make the ruling party look both weak, um, but also yeah. that citizens suffer. So it, it really does seem like a lousy arrangement for everyone. I think we have to get back to what the IMF is then. The IMF, you only go to the IMF as a bank of last resort. It's when, you're, when you cannot finance your budget uh, deficit by any other means. And you, you are usually by then in, in, quite, in the throes of quite a serious economic crisis. I mean, you look at the Greek crisis in, uh, in, in Europe, you know, that's the sort of crisis we're talking about. That's the sort of bailout that, uh, that, that would, you know, that would warrant the IMF intervention. And we are very far away from that in South Africa. But the thing that you, you know, it, it is, uh, because it's the bank of last resort, it is a sign, it, you know, it's ironic that actually it shouldn't be seen as a sign of weakness because in a sense it does impose a discipline on the, on the you know, the, it does discipline governments in their in terms of their spending and their revenue collection because the other side of a macroeconomic policy that works and that is structured from the outside is that it does impose proper revenue collection and deals with with some you know in other countries where again the tax base has perhaps been narrowly focused on multinational companies that actually say new industries like cell phone industries haven't been properly introduced into the tax system just uh, and and things like that so i mean i think one of the other things i would say is that yes it comes you know for for the um, you know for the anc it would be it would be seen as a spectacular disaster and you know given how riven with divisions the anc is it yeah. would play not only into the uh, into the internal uh, um, hostilities of say say you know Suramaphosa's internal opposition, but also it would play into the hands of the populists because yeah. of course it uh, you know the EFF it would be music to the ears of the EFF to have a what is a, in effect a Western dominated 
body like the IMF yeah. uh, imposing rules and classic rules so it's it's very far from any kind of socialist model yes in fact they're sort of hardcore capitalists in terms of wanting privatization and i'm sure escom you know even the anc itself is starting to talk about privatizing parts of escom you must know the socialist dream isn't going well when that's happening no <laughs> it's true so it's the antithesis of a socialist uh, uh, policy. And in Africa's case, it has been the answer to, say, the IMF intervention to a large extent has been the answer to decades of Marxist or uh, the post-independence period for a number of countries that, that followed a lot of high-spend Marxist socialist policies, then in the end had to take the medicine um, I think in some instances it was much too severe and I think it was a contributing factor to, say, in West Africa, some of the terrible conflicts that subsequently ensued, you know, where people had nothing much, nothing more in, say, Liberia and Sierra Leone, uh, well, in, to, other than to pick up a gun and rampage around the countryside. Uh, so... You know, IMF austerity can have very negative social impacts as well. This is something that you have so much experience about. I mean, you've worked and travelled in Africa for for decades and decades, and I, I really do. I mean, we can talk about you know North Africa, Mali, that that whole part of the world, but I'm also quite interested in Southern Africa. Just researching the pod, I was looking at some of our neighbours who've who've approached the IMF. It seems pretty much everyone feels that way. Yes, um, Zambia, you know, Mozambique, but the most pressing case is probably Zim, right on our yes. doorstep. I think they've had something like seven IMF interventions, even if they're not yes. full bailouts in, in the last sort of 25 years. And, and you really know a lot about Zim. It seems to have been a very fraught engagement. Zambia also seems to be, there's a lot of tension. Could you talk a little bit about our neighbours? I think there is, you know, the confluence of apparent political intervention from abroad has been at the heart of the fracture that, you know, the, the difficult relationship that, uh, that Zimbabwe has with the IMF, for example. Mm. When I, fir I first went to write a report about, uh, about the Zimbabwean economy, I think it was in 95, uh, where I went and interviewed all the heads of business and, uh, and politicians as well. And that was at the first engagement, really. It was sort of 15 years after independence. And it was, uh, it was a very first real engagement with the IMF. And the conditionalities were really quite going to be quite stringent and i have to say i think the result of the stringency was uh, was actually led to or was a contributing factor to the farm invasions where you know robert mugabe absolutely refused to consider uh, the conditionalities and then uh, set about um, taking these drastic economically destructive steps uh, that have continued till now and there is a residual real dislike of, uh, of IMF conditionality. One of the things that we should also look at is that IMF, the IMF actually, you know, in providing funding and providing a vehicle, it's also a vehicle towards massive debt relief. Mm. You know, it is, it is 
often the only way to get international debt relief. And unfortunately, Zimbabwe is in that position at the moment. Yeah, they owe eight billion, I read somewhere, eight billion US yes. dollars. Yeah. And of that, I think 1.5 billion repayments are due this year, which they are not going to be able to make. So we're sort of talking default as a situation and, you know, and an impossible economic situation. But there is a political factor to this as well. The IMF is the uh, the U.S. government. The U.S. is the biggest uh, contributor, obviously, to the IMF and its biggest shareholder. And because after the elections last year and after the sort of August uh, riots, which then led to six civilians being killed, the uh, U.S. reenacted uh, an act that actually prevents the U.S. from voting for any debt relief. Um, for Zimbabwe. And until that act is uh, repealed, there is very little chance of uh, a major debt rescheduling being carried out, unless unless there are some dramatic political uh, political reforms take place uh, in Zimbabwe. So Zimbab- the Zimbabwe-IMF uh, relationship is probably the worst case example. Mm. Um, but if I could come back to Zambia... Now, Zambia has had a totally different uh, relationship with the IMF. I mean, in 19, I think it was in, uh, it was in the sort of early 90s in the political transition from Kawunda, there was also an IMF bailout program, which was very successful. Um, and actually, over the long term, it, it also involved debt relief and debt rescheduling. It has enabled Zambia to move from what was a low-income country to a middle-income country. And that middle-income country status, it's a little bit of a cycle of, uh, a little bit of cycle of drama, <laughs> allowed, uh, allowed Zambia to then go to the commercial debt markets and to, and to borrow, mm. which is ironically the source of its current problems and its need to go back to the IMF again over-indebted and, and also concealed some of their debts. Is that right? Absolutely, they yes, yeah. they did. They had hidden, you know, and hiding hiding debt, as as, uh, as Mozambique has discovered from the IMF, is not a good idea. <laughs> so when we say hiding debt, so listeners, uh, Zambia had been discovered, I think they'd taken loans from China that they hadn't declared, Tara, is yes. that right? And yeah. I think Mozambique was a similar situation. And and, they, and then the IMF says it can't get a complete picture of your indebtedness. So lying, taking out debts and then lying about it is not a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's true. And uh, that points to another problem. Uh, that points to a problem that is very current within the sort of debt management story of Africa is actually China's involvement. Yeah, isn't China going to save us all? No. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, so, well, actually, there, you know, I have two ways of looking at that. Nobody else has invested as much as China has in infrastructure in Africa. So from there, we must doff our caps. Uh, while we, while Western governments and everything put far too many restrictions on actually releasing money for investment in infrastructure, the Chinese didn't. And they have actually, as a result, uh, a lot of our pan-African growth is actually to do with that infrastructure just being built. But there are also this side of direct bilateral loans that China has made to, uh, to many governments, and that's hidden. Um, 
But interestingly, now that China is uh, Chinese, China's economy has uh, shrunk in its own growth to uh, from sort of heady heights of nine, ten percent down to about six uh, to its lowest levels since the mid 90s. Um, we are now seeing the, the China being very reluctant to lend to recidivist economies uh, that uh, that actually just don't pay don't pay their loans. Um, there is also a great deal of resistance in in lots of governments that they don't they are lots of African governments now resist any idea of Chinese loans being converted into equity and they're actually or being into ownership or concessions in ports and so on. Um, but and so as China receipt, you know, backs out, we are now seeing the IMF coming back in again, and we are beginning to start. We're starting to see much more realistic um, assessments of what Africa's debt is again, thanks uh, thanks to the banker of last resort. And has the IMF learnt any lessons? I mean, you spoke about some of the unintended consequences of perhaps extreme austerity. And also it sounds like perhaps unintended humiliation of sense of sovereign identity, perhaps the political yeah. ruling party, which can lead to either populism or in the worst case, radicalism. Do you think the IMF is reflecting on this and their engagement in Africa? Definitely. You know, I mean, there is, you know, we... You know, we're in the middle of a global shift, as you are well aware, from, you know, the, uh, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions that lasted for 70 years in, in the post-war era no longer have the relevance they had. We've just seen Christine Lagarde uh, step down. I mean, the very fact, I mean, yes, it's fantastic that Christine Lagarde is a woman for, you know, woman leader of the IMF is quite uh, a change in itself. But she's still a French woman. And it's traditional that, you know, I think it's absurd in a modern world that such an important and powerful institution should be uh, at the, you know, still in the gift of the old Western powers. Um, And certainly, I think uh, we've heard Tito Mbaweni has has made a gentle criticism of that. And I certainly think in India, China, and uh, and some of the you know certainly in the African Union countries would you know want to see to trying to open up the IMF to more uh, sort of Africa relevant decision making you know developing you know partnerships with countries trying not to be a dictate to countries what they should do uh, I think there are some clear examples of this for example. In the, with the Ebola epidemic in Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia, the IMF was the first to respond. So in a slightly shift, in a shift of its role, so no longer the bank of last resort, but the first, uh, the first to intervene. Mm, so it sounds like they are adapting. But I wanted to just get back to some of the... Um the nitty gritty of an IMF intervention. So they're going to come in, they're going to implement these reforms. And I imagine that an inevitable result of that is that they're going to want to intervene in policy. Um, and as we know that, you know, that's very much the domain of a ruling party. It's their right, it's their prerogative. I and mean, in most cases, they're democratically elected, although perhaps with ZANU in, in Zimbabwe, it wasn't always that straightforward. But I imagine that interventions in policy are extremely unpopular. I mean, are there examples of governments just refusing to implement those policies or trying to modify and influence them? Or have they ever walked away and just said, well, actually, I'm not doing that? Well, 
again, Zimbabwe was the classic example of refusal and taking a very negative and destructive um, alternative route, which was, as we know, into into sort of uh, expropriation of land. Whatever you feel about that politically and historically, that was the that was the result. But I think there are normally the way it works, you know, and over the years, you normally have the IMF will keeps tracks on most most economies, particularly emerging economies, as a matter of course. And they do actually have some of the world's uh, finest economists uh, there, although I would suggest that they perhaps don't have enough people that are actually sort of grassroots from the countries in which they have. Although I think that's changing, but over time they didn't have, they have all the best and the brightest brains from all over the world. Um, but uh, I think people with a sympathy of, of what's of local conditions, perhaps not so much. Mm. Um, but the real thing is that the, you know, they have these things called Article 4 visits, which actually then they sit down with a finance ministry and sit down and agree the economic reform program that is tied to the loan. And really only once the government has signed up to that economic policy framework or whatever uh, is it, does it get, and, you know, that is indicated by introducing it into, say, the budget law uh, of the of the country then only then will the IMF allow the drawdowns uh, mm. on the loan. So you've got this chicken and egg situation always. So if a government needs to do X, Y or Z and needs that, uh, the next tranche, they call it tranches, to, uh, to fund its civil service bill, it will have to take the uh, unpleasant, you know, the, the tough tasting medicine. And one of the things we've seen in South Africa is everyone is starting to try and speculate about what the reforms, you know, let's just say, in a hypothetical situation in which we might get to the stage where we might need an IMF bailout, what might those reforms look like? And it's been really interesting for me researching it because it's just sort of whatever the particular commentator or journalist, what they feel most passionate about. So some people say, <laughs> oh, we need to dismantle BEE, and other people say we need to privatise ESCOM, and some people say we need to cut. Uh, you know, welfare. Uh, what's your view of, of what the most urgent things might be that need reform in the South African economy? Well, I mean, the thing that needs uh, reform most as is what we've discussed before is the state-owned enterprises. SOEs are the big crisis uh, that is waiting to happen. Uh, you know, if you actually, and I'll come back to, I actually think that the, you know, the pro, I, in researching this as well, I listened again to Tito Mbaweni's um, uh, budget speech. And actually, a lot of the classic macroeconomic policies are built in there. I would have thought that the, if an IMF was to come in, they would actually make them more stringent. So, you know, a faster moving of uh, a cutting of the civil service. And the civil service budget is, uh, is something that would definitely need to be cut. Um, and that is happening, but it's happening over a three-year time frame. And perhaps if you were under an IMF uh, vision, you would perhaps look at um, perhaps uh, doing that faster. You know, really the IMF uh, programs are, and even monitoring programs are about getting revenue and um, getting revenue up and spending down. And if you look 
if you actually look at what Tita Mboweni has presented, it is exactly that. It's getting revenue up, i.e. restoring the confidence, uh, restoring the capacity and confidence in SARS that has been lost over, over I don't know how many it's years. It's lost by me, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, if you consider the first ANC government under uh, under uh, Thabo Mbeki, you know, left uh, and uh, Pravin Gordon, you had a, a world class revenue collection system that was actually advising. HMC was actually advising I us. I know. I mean, in, when I go mm. and work in Africa, I meet SARS consultants mm. um, yes. from that era, working all across the continent and advising <laughs> revenue services. It's amazing. And I sort of say, maybe you need to come home. <laughs> Advise us again. I totally agree. Come home. All is forgiven. But, you know, exactly that. Get that uh, uh, so getting revenue up and then slashing uh, and then slashing spending. But also dealing with getting stuff off the uh, out of the budget that um, that shouldn't be there. Um, so and in the IMF thinking, and this is where political problems uh, would come in in South Africa's case. You know, privatisation is very much part of the IMF package, and so you would see them looking at the assets of the state and looking where you could actually push them in push them into private sector hands. Um, in some cases, you know, after, I mean, again, looking back at Zambia, Zambia's, I think it was their early 90s uh, IMF restructuring, you know, resulted in probably the biggest reinvestment in the mining sector in, uh, you know, for in the post-independence period. It actually resulted in all the mines that had been nationalized being reprivatized and masses of new capital from Australia, from Canada, from even from South Africa uh, going up and investing in new mining, new mining technology and all of that sort of thing. So it's, you know, it's not always, I mean, the, the uh, austerity side of it is always hard, but at the end, uh, it does, uh, uh, you know, an IMF program often leaves a country in a better state, um, perhaps not socially immediately, but in the long term, able to sustain themselves without constantly harking back to the IMF. I know I sound like an aficionado, but I have got, seen it over 25 years, seen the actual uh, you know, I do think that that hard work that a lot of these governments across Africa have done in improving revenue and cutting spending and in, and encouraging foreign investment has actually led to the continent becoming the second fastest growing continent on the planet. Mm. You know, so this is also the fix about private the, the wicked fix about private privatization because it's so much a challenge to the self-concept of a lot of these post-liberation movements which is that the state must be the driver of development i mean they even yes, you know, adopt the that development theory, state the, the development state of thinking and and that that is the will of the people that that is just um and so to privatize is to cut that you know, that sphere of control away from the state, which is just so inconceivable if you're a true believer. But I agree with you that it's only once you kind of cut off these bits and that innovation can really happen because those are the exciting spaces where you just look at Kenya, 
where there's just so much interesting innovation when you leave people and technology, just give people a fast internet connection, access to credit and a whole bunch of entrepreneurs and some really sexy stuff can happen. Absolutely. Um, so you do mm. sort of wish, particularly the, in the independent power producer space. Um, I mean, I'm always meeting entrepreneurs in South Africa who say to me, oh, I have this great idea for an IPP or I could do this or I could do that. And regardless of politically what you might feel about that, it just really could release a whole lot of new ideas and, and innovation. Absolutely. I so agree with you on that. I mean, it's interesting that Kenya is the one country that never that didn't do that um it never went through a sort of socialist marxist phase um it has always been a very much a free market facing you know free market uh economy um all the way through its uh, post independence history uh, and has strongly resisted the kind of uh sort of nationalizations and all of that that you've seen very much a lot of in west africa you know, Nigeria nationalizing banks and oil companies in 74, as far back as 74. But I think there's a balance to be struck. You know, I think one of the things that uh, I definitely think there is such a role for, um, you know, in, you know, adopting some of the developmental agenda, if it's a mm. genuinely developmental agenda, mm. you can never really borrow money more cheaply than from the state. Mm -hmm. um, and the taxpayer. And so the taxpayer, I think, is a great source of funding for the development of infrastructure, for, you know, investment in people, you know, the education, I mean, education, 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 uh, investing in, in long term productivity uh, is, is really the role of the state. And then let the innovators make you know, monolithical, massive companies like ESCOM um, really are harkbacks, you know, they hark back to the 1970s and really they need to be see that they would they would unleash so much more, create so many more jobs if they were, if a, a, a substantial, you know, private sector uh, investment or part, even part privatisation where the state own, owns a a minority shareholding in it maintains what you would call a golden share, perhaps, um, to benefit from ownership so that the revenue system can still benefit uh, from innovation that takes place through through a privatization. But obviously, I recognize that that is privatization is still a very dirty word in South Africa. The dirtiest. Yeah. I mean, you're not even allowed, to, you're not even allowed to think of it. And, and this then leads into, I, I see so much generational conflict, actually, the world over. I mean, it's as yeah. true in, in the UK and France right now as, as it is in, um, as it is in South Africa, but just this real attachment to older ideas and a sort of rigidity around mm. seeing those through. And then yes. young, a generation of under 30s and under 40s who really want to innovate and do things yeah. differently yeah. and I, I can't help wondering if an IMF bailout although it would be as I think we all agree a, a real shock to the system and pretty awful but if it might also be a rebirth and an opportunity for for the youth of South Africa to do things a bit differently do you know I think I mean I do think that you've touched upon something there Jessica that is I think interesting and that is seeing um, the IMF as a political tool. 
which the IMF itself would would resoundly, you know, would reject. And say, they're this neutral, is, yes. We're, we're yes. neutral, we're not uh, in this. But, you know, for example, Tito Mbaweni, uh, you know, arranging an IMF programme, uh, you know, might be, uh, you know, a political tool to say, well, actually, you know, this was actually all that corruption and state capture has left us in this position and we now have to take much stronger medicine and it might be grist to his mill or, uh, you know, sort of strength to his forearm in carrying out the necessary reforms that will unleash the South African economy. Because, I mean, let's face it, you know, we're, you know, what he's looking at is a really anemic growth next year and only returning to two point, I think, four percent uh, in 2021. And and we still need in South Africa, uh, a, 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 you know, 6% growth rate to absorb the 30, 29 to 30% unemployed. Uh, and that, and I, you know, given South Africa's entrepreneurial spirit, I don't think that's unachievable. Um, but I think it does, it does mean, it does need um, some tougher measures perhaps now, which are politically unpalatable, that will draw in new foreign direct investment uh, on, a, on a significant scale to restore, restore the uh, economy. So just to finish, I actually wanted to ask you a, a question about metaphor. So and yes. you just said it yourself. So so everyone talks about the IMF as, as bitter medicine or it's a tough pill to swallow. There's a lot of medical um, metaphor that surrounds it. And I suppose calling it a medicine does rest on the presumption that the, at the end of it, you will feel better. Yeah. But I wondered, I mean, what is your view? You're a political analyst with decades of experience. Do yeah. you think it would actually make South Africa better? I think what would make South Africa better would be to do it for itself. You know, South Africa is is the second biggest economy on the continent. And, and actually, it comes back to what I said at the beginning, is that, you know, South Africa is probably got, has a flesh wound, if we were in me- talking metaphors. Oh, I love a good metaphor. Yeah, keep going, Tara. <laughs> but... You know, it's it is a flesh wound. It is not. Uh, it it is not in. You know, it doesn't need surgery. So it doesn't need the uh, intervention of an outside party. What it does need is is strong government policy. And for the policies that actually Tito Mboweni has set out to be carried out in full, for the institutions to be restored, you know, the investigations units, the SARS. SARS to get back to its former glory of of of, of record-breaking revenue collection, uh, and uh, and then for the government to continue what it's been doing to restore confidence in in the international investor community in South Africa, and with that there should be no need for uh, I, you know there should be no need for for any kind of external intervention at all. Uh, you know, and that's my best hope for South Africa is to, you know, just uh, give these guys a chance, uh, men and women, actually, uh, a chance to write South Africa uh, and and to allow it to take its place as the, you know, once again, as the motor, the, the economic motor of the subregion. They're very clear things that uh, that it is doing 
And if it keeps going, if the ANC under Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, with good people like Tito Mbaweni and Pravin Gordon uh, dealing with the tough economic uh, conditions, I think we can all be uh, hopeful. Okay, so maybe an IMF bailout, but not today. Not today. Not today. (laughs) Please. Tara O'Connor, it's been so fantastic. Please get back to your wonderful French holiday and drink (laughs) a glass of red wine. (laughs) And thank you so much for being on The Commute. What a pleasure. What a pleasure, Jessica. Nice to chat to you. It sounds like an IMF bailout is somewhere away for South Africa, so we can all just cool our jets for now. But what all the IMF talk does seem to indicate is how deep the jitters about South Africa's economy and the future seem to go. Is this just a reckoning we knew was coming from the Zuma years and institutions and the economy are going to improve? Or are we just delaying the inevitable and the ANC cannot deliver? 